this morning, we are going to look at two videos. I'm uh, beginning uh, a new sermon series, and I was looking for two videos that would be helpful to frame the beginning of this series. And for some of you, you will find this to be quite entertaining. Up with the sound. Goldstein, Wazinski, McDougall, Svensson, at ease, man. You men have all volunteered to be Maytag repairmen, so I'm going to give it to you straight. Maytag washers and dryers are built to last. That makes a Maytag repairman the loneliest guy in town. Look at this rugged motor, this almost indestructible pump. Take a good look, because most of you may never see the inside of one of these again. This is your survival kit. Playing cards for solitaire. Crossword puzzles. Beadwork. Keep these with you at all times. Okay, men, wear your Maytag emblem proudly. The sign of dependable watchers and dryers. So what if nobody needs you? It takes a real man to fight off loneliness. A Maytag repairman. <laughs> the loneliest guy in town. Wow, Maytag repairman. The loan. You guys ever see that commercial? Remember the Maytag commercials? Some of you older people remember that. I remember as a kid. Because they're reliable. They don't stop working. Of course, my Maytags have always broken down on me. Now, the next, newer version. Next. Congratulations. It's Maytag. When you bring a Maytag appliance into your home, there's a little something extra inside. Tough, hard-working American dependability. So go ahead and load up these racks with family meals. Hand over all the dishes and pans, even the filthy ones. Because dependability means giving your stains a kick in the pants. So even when cornflakes dry into cement flakes. And when fishing trips go way better than expected, you can depend on Maytag to roll up its sleeves and clean up these sleeves. And use a little elbow grease to cut through this grease. Because dependability is what Maytag does. Maytag, what's inside matters. All right. Dependability, reliability. How many of you like that? Who likes to get up in the morning, turn the key in the ignition, and the car doesn't work? <laughs> it doesn't work. How many of you expect it to turn on? Or do you expect the trains to run on time? You expect the buses to move on time? You expect the light switch to turn on a light? Yesterday, Gershon was so happy because his bubby changed a light bulb. That may be the first time my wife has changed a light bulb in 40 years. Right? Dependability. Who's really dependable? Bob is saying that Barry is dependable. What? What, Jim? You are dependable. You realize that we are all dependable in, in certain ways. It's true. I mean, when I look across this room, I mean, I don't see anyone in this room who is absolutely a, a two-faced liar. Because that would mean that you would never speak truth. You would always, and people could never depend on anything you would say. I've met those people, okay? We all seek to be dependable. Can you always be dependable? No. We're, we are human beings. We cannot be dependable. Do you know who is dependable? God. God is the one who's, you know, you like God is the only one who's dependable. You know, uh, what is it, like 75% of American infrastructure has to be 
upgraded or replaced. It's made of steel, it's made of concrete. What's the problem? The problem is over time, even things that are built to last can't be considered dependable. They need to be replaced. Only God is dependable, the creator of all things. He is dependable. And uh, this morning we're going to be just briefly just touching on an introduction of, of the sermon series regarding covenant. <clears throat> and I wanted to begin by pulling up two slides that were at the end of my sermon series from the book of Galatians. Being made righteous comes only by God's righteous action. God brings us into relationship with him by making us righteous. He does that. He is dependable to save us. God is dependable to save us. Those who belong to God, he holds on to. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Those that are in the Messiah's hands cannot be removed. All kinds of texts that speak of us, to us about the fact that God is dependable when it comes to our relationship with him. I mean, the whole Bessorah, the good news, is that God brings us into right relationship with him despite our sinfulness. So if God is dependable, are we dependable? We're dependable to sin. <laughs> we are going to sin. We're going we're gonna to mess up some point. We are going to disappoint God at some point. God doesn't sin. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't get fed up. God doesn't hold grudges. God doesn't get angry. He operates in complete and total righteousness. Therefore, he is dependable. And this is important because if God wants to bring us into right relationship with him, yet we are sinful, we accept that ultimately there's no effort on our part to make this work to make this be possible. It really isn't. Fundamentally, because we fail, we're not dependable. We rely on his dependability in order for us to truly have our sins forgiven. That's why solely through our faith in Messiah Yeshua's atonement, trusting in God's dependability. Well, we're going to be basically focused on this theme for the next couple of, I don't know, could be a year or more. I'll explain it in a moment. God makes mutually binding covenants with mankind that only he is able to ultimately keep. That's an important theological statement. In fact, when you look at the biblical text, what the biblical text teaches us is that God created a perfect world. That that perfect world rebelled against him, and yet God didn't burn it all and start all over. God made a covenant, made a consistent covenant all the way along between himself and, and mankind in different pieces in different ways, and that in each situation only he is able to hold that covenant together because he is God. He is the only one who is truly dependable. So I'm going to call this new sermon series Covenant, and I think this is one of the most misunderstood parts of Scripture. I just got done reading a, a pretty good book, <clears throat> and the author was talking about, you know, I showed part of it, the unseen realm, about the spiritual reality of the world we live in. And he had some great things to, uh, to say in the book. I mean, David Barker and I talked about it once. And in the midst of, at the very end, I, he takes a theological position which eliminates the position of the Jewish people. And it's because of a misunderstanding of covenant. 
In, in Christian thought, and much, much of what is in Christian thought, there's a misunderstanding of covenant. And fascinating enough, the area where there's the most misunderstanding occurs in the exilic and post-exilic literature. Covenant agreement, pact treaty, breit. The word breit in Hebrew means covenant. It means to cut something, okay? All right, and, and so we're going to look at this in terms of the biblical text, but we are going to specifically focus in the uh, exilic and post-exilic literature. So you'll notice up there, you've got the, the books of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The book of Daniel in the Christian order of scriptures is a prophetic book. In the Jewish order, it's a writing. And to be quite frank, the Jewish order is older than the Christian order. All right? So I'm going to assume that when the authors came, when the book was written, it, it holds obviously prophetic material in it, but the value of the book is to help us understand what's going on among the, among the people of Israel, specifically this guy Daniel and his relationship with the people as a representative during the exile. And that's, what, uh, that's why it's there listed along with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And in the uh, prophetic books we're going to touch on will be Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Jeremiah, of course, written right during that period of exile, uh, but gets, uh, gives us an awful lot of important information. Ezekiel, written in exile in Babylonia. And then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, written after the, uh, the exiles come back, commenting really in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this morning what I want us to do is read together Jeremiah 31. Just to touch on Jeremiah 31. So turn with me in the scriptures, please, to Jeremiah 31. Passage I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Page 484. Page 484 in our congregational Tanakh. Now, this particular chapter, you know, this is, this is, it's, he, the book of Jeremiah is not written chronologically. It's not put together chronologically. It's not what it's about. It's about themes. And so here, he is providing encouragement for the people, giving them hope, giving them hope. They've been exiled, all right? This is already, this is written either right at the end or close to the end. There's already been waves of exile. The nation's a mess. It's about to be completely destroyed if it hasn't been already. And people are like, Oive Shemir, all is lost. You guys ever been at an Oive moment, like all is lost? I have. Like, Oive, I'm done. But God is a God of hope. There's no circumstance you're in that is not redeemable by the Lord your God. He can take you through the difficulties and out on the other side and do amazing things with you post the Oive. You know the second temple was greater than the first temple? Isn't that amazing? And certainly the most reason for that it was Yeshua's presence. But by its form and its function, it was far superior to Solomon's temple. God can make the post better than the pre, even than the, and, and encourage you toward that even in the midst of your oy vey. And that's what's going on here. This is a part of a section in the text where he's encouraging the people with a future hope. So he says in verse 31, Behold, days are coming, is a declaration about an eye, but I will make a new covenant. 
the Brit Chadashah, with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. You've got to remember the house of Israel was already exiled about 150 years prior. And with the house of Judah, that one they're going through right now. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I, in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they broke my covenant, though I was a husband of them. It is a declaration of Adonai, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. It is a declaration of Adonai. I'll put my Torah within them. Yes, I will write it on their heart. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will each teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, No, Adonai, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It is a declaration of Adonai, for I will forgive their iniquity. Their sin I will remember no more. Thus says Adonai, who gives the sun as a light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars as a light by night, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar. Adonai, Lord of hosts, is his name. Only if this fixed order departs from before me, it is a declaration of Adonai, then also might Israel's offspring cease from being a nation before me for all time. Thus says Adonai, only if heaven and above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then also I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. It is a declaration of Adonai. Those are extremely encouraging words to a people in the midst of Oive. Why are they in exile? Why are they going into exile? Because of their sin. The nation sinned horrifically. God is going to exile them and redeem them. And uh, that's really the major reason for this text. Obviously, it speaks here about the work Messiah Yeshua is going to do in inaugurating a new covenant relationship with God by faith alone. All right? But the main point of this text is really to bring encouragement. That's what it's for. And why is it? Because God is reliable. You know, if you have chosen to believe by faith in Yeshua's atonement, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Because you have made the decision to commit yourself to the truth of who God is and who Yeshua is as the Messiah, and you have accepted his atonement, his shed blood for the forgiveness of your sin. God is reliable to both accept you into his household, the household of faith, to become his child. He's also accepted the responsibility of keeping you, despite yourself. Because he is God. When we think about our Jewish people, the Jewish people have not been a God-honoring people very much. I mean, it's just Jewish history. We have not been who God wanted us to be. But God didn't toss us away because he said he wouldn't. He would punish us, he would discipline us, but he would always hold on to us despite ourselves. There's hope in his promise. Israel in the land, is it, is it the full fulfillment? Absolutely not. But God is going to restore Israel, our people, in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the promises in the biblical text, including this one, in the land. And he's going to make it happen because he is reliable. We sin. I love pointing out to Reformed and Covenant theologians that if God gets fed up with Israel's sin, he should have got fed up with the church a long time ago. All you got to do is just read the church history in the Middle Ages with the Catholics and stuff. Come on, folks. But all true believers sin. Right? Take a moment. 
Take a moment, think about the most stupid sin you committed in the last 24 to 48 hours. Think about something you said or did or something you thought that you know God wouldn't want you to say, do, or think. And to recognize that that's forgiven because of the shed blood of the Messiah, Yeshua. And even if you struggle with that sin between now and your death, that God will forgive you and that God will hold on to you despite yourself. Because God is reliable. There's always a hope for us. God is going to continue to move us forward because he's going to be in relationship with us for eternity. That's his promise. You and I are going to spend eternity with God because of our belief in Yeshua's Messiahship. Because of our belief in the atonement he provides for our sin. That's encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. So as we go through this material for the next whatever, part of what we're going to see is that the exilic and post-exilic literature is full of encouragement toward hope. There's chastisement, there's discipline, but it's all about really hope that the God of Israel has not been, you know, he's not off his game. There's hope for a future. There's a plan for the future, and that involves us, both as Jews and as believers in Yeshua. So it should be a very interesting study, and uh, it should be somewhat mixed from time to time. And I hope that you have as much interest in it as I do as we go along.